Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, Axe, here we are right after my home state of Michigan led the country in uh, coronating Joe Biden. What a what a day it is. But I don't think Bernie got the memo. What, what's your take? You know, I think Bernie got the memo, but I think he's reading it slowly for the benefit <laughs> of his of his followers. He uh, just uh, a little while ago really gave a statement. It wasn't a press conference. He didn't tellingly he didn't take questions. It was telling actually last night when Bernie Sanders didn't come out and yep. address reporters uh, as he normally would after the results. Clearly, they were examining the rubble that was Super Tuesday 2 and trying to figure out if there's a path forward. The reality is there is no uh, mm-hmm. path forward. But uh, I think he is trying to figure out how to land the plane. And what was really interesting about his statement was what it didn't contain. It, it, it didn't contain any personal attacks on Joe Biden, who he referred to as his friend. It did reaffirm his commitment to do whatever he needed to to help defeat Donald Trump. He said he's going to the debate on Sunday, and he threw out a bunch of questions that he wanted to ask Joe Biden, as if to say, I am throwing you the crip sheet. I'm tipping you to the questions and just come with some answers. And really what he was saying is, help me help you bring along my followers who are in this for reasons, uh, reasons uh, about their sense of urgency on climate, on all the, on uh, inequality, on on social justice issues, on the cost of education, on the cost of health care. And I actually think that's an important admonition, Mike, to Biden, because as we'll discuss, the one thing that he has not shown He's shown a lot of strengths here, showed a lot of strengths yesterday, hasn't shown the ability to attract young people. And that's going to be important in what may be marginal races in some of these battleground states. Yeah, he doesn't want war with Bernie world. And I thought Bernie did send that signal, but I'll believe it after the debate because Bernie's an old brawler in some ways. And will he go down trying to be an advertising prop for Biden to – try to move Bernie supporters into into Joe world as opposed to some peakish, we're not going to participate anymore. If we can't have a revolution, we're going to hold our breath, which will always be the first instinct sometimes of a of a movement candidate like Bernie when they get out. And then I think people come back. But we're see the debate could be an adroit pass or it, it could still be Bernie thinking I can land a couple of blows on him. Not what he hinted now, but I'll, again, I'll believe it when I see it on Social Security and, and, and other stuff and maybe have some magic come from behind electricity next Tuesday. So it looks to me like Bernie's going to hang in one more week, but we're, we're see. We're see what he says at the debate. I was looking for cues in this statement today, and what I saw was a guy who saw the handwriting on the wall, and he also knows how to count and the uh, not just read. And uh, you look at the four states next week, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, and Ohio. Man, terrible. They, they were bad for him in 2016. They're likely, if the pattern holds, to be worse for him in uh, 2020. And he will be 150 or more delegates behind going into that day. So you have the same. And by the way, Georgia follows those I, I was going to say, yeah, Georgia, which is another neckbreaker like Mississippi, is coming on the heels of there. So there, there is no path. And it's just, you know how emotion kind of takes over. But I agree. Today looked like an advertisement to Biden to 
pass certain litmus tests that are going to pop up in this debate. And, you know, there's an issue there, too, because Joe showed strength in Michigan and exactly, at least in the primary, but Michigan's an open primary. People can participate. And I think a bunch did. Turnout was up. Uh, He showed strength in the areas of Michigan where Hillary way underperformed, which is how Bernie, you know, narrowly beat her last time. So Joe's on a bit of a message roll here. And if he takes too much of a detour into appeasing loony left ideological test, it can be fraught with danger as well. So it's going to be a very interesting debate. It's very much about the big picture. I don't think that's going to happen, but I I don't think there's anything wrong with Biden subscribing to the aspirations of Bernie's followers to want a country in which people can get health care if they need it, to want a country in which you could get educated without going deeply, deeply, deeply into debt, to want a country in which that gets serious about climate change. Those are good aspirations. And the thing that Biden has to do, it seems to me, is make clear that their sense of urgency is his sense of urgency. He doesn't have to subscribe to Bernie's uh, prescriptions, but he does, I think, have to pledge a sense of uh, commitment and urgency to those causes. And he should be able to do that. I think he probably feels them. Yeah, no, no. He would say he does. And I think in the rhetorical moves for Biden going forward, it's all about being generically for those aspirations, not the policy agenda. And will Bernie use the debate to try to staple some of the policy agenda to Joe? That, that to me, is a question. Uh, and how cantankerous will he be about it? But, you know, we're we'll find out. We'll see. It does look like Bernie has given up on the old Bernie, which would have been, you know, all the way to the convention. And he has the money to be troublesome. You know, Bernie could keep going even when it's hopeless. So he did send a signal of normalcy and sanity here, which, you know, I would be happy if I were Joe. Even before the primaries, he said, uh, he was talking to George Stephanopoulos, and he said, I'm not a masochist. I'm not going to pursue this if if I don't see a path. He indicated today that he doesn't really see a path. So Yeah, and I think Trump, you know, is such a supervillain that he does force a certain clarity and sanity, which is another reason why the Pete's and Amy's and everybody, you know, Elizabeth was a little late. But there just does this rallying call of we can't afford silliness, we got to beat Trump, does seem to have power both with the voters and with the candidates. Let's just go over the the results yesterday uh, and see what we can divine from them. Less about uh, where the primary is going, because we, we've beaten that to death already, and we kind of know where it's going. Mm-hmm. But what did we learn about Biden and the general election? Because it seems to me that the promise of Biden at the beginning of this process begins to show in some of these election results. And I'll let you talk about Michigan. He won that by 17 points. Remember, this was a basically a push in 2016, Sanders winning by a slight uh, bit over Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden wins by 17 points, uh, 16 points, I should say, netted so far a 17 delegate edge out of it. But you, you as I, looked at the counties where, where uh, mm-hmm. Biden performed well. You looked at turnout and so on. Tell me what you saw in your home state and what that portends, if anything, for the general election. Well, I'm always a little bit uh, uh, not suspicious, but a little bit careful about taking primary results and applying them to a general. But that said, I think there are some lessons here. In the last one that Hillary won narrowly, you know, she ran up the margin nearly two to one in the tri-counties, Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb. 
although not as well in Oakland and Macomb, really in Wayne, which is Detroit and the and the western and southern suburbs. Then you have the above eight mile, as uh, as your great friend Eminem would say, <laughs> which is Macomb and Oakland. And then, you know, oh, uh, Macomb was pretty close last time with Hillary. This time, Biden blew the doors off all those places, and he kept blowing the doors off. And that's a mix of of middle-class white voters, suburban voters, and African-American voters. And he, he did well with all of them. And he went up I-75, which is kind of the spine of the uh, industrial economy in Michigan. It's a big reason why we're not speaking German right now. <laughs> goes all the way up to Saginaw and Flint, all the way down to Toledo. And Biden killed in the whole corridor. Now, what Bernie did last time, and he didn't do this time, was start beating Hillary almost two to one out in West Michigan. A lot of smaller, more rural counties, yep. much a lot of light manufacturing. I was watching Kalamazoo County yes, uh, be, because it's an interesting one, and you know it well because you've, you've been seen sneaking over the border uh, from Illinois into southwestern Michigan from time to time. Exactly. And Kazoo, as we tend to call it up there, um, was a classic Bernie – uh, before and, and Biden basically beat it uh, even or a little yes, better than even. Yes. So and that's the home of Kalamazoo College, Western Michigan University. It's a college town, right? Yeah, right. Even Washington Ann Arbor University yeah, it was of Michigan. Even. Um, uh, Joe carried it. Even just a little, a little uh, a hair in his direction. Right. Now that's a huge accomplishment. So basically, Biden won everywhere. Biden showed a much stronger pattern geographically and i think we're we're going to have to you know look at some actual precincts but demographically than hillary ever did which means the idea that joe biden at least good joe biden the joe biden who's been we've seen lately on the surfboard doing well that biden is fitting michigan well which means he's also going to play well in wisconsin western pennsylvania and ohio all key places to do well to beat trump and the interesting thing was turnout turnout uh, in Michigan was up dramatically, as we've seen in some other states. Yeah, uh, a lot. From 1.2 to 1.7 million, a half million more voters, you would have said in the abstract, gee, a big turnout would probably favor Bernie Sanders. That is not what happened here. And the turnout was particularly robust in these suburban areas, which tells me that what happened in 2018 could happen again which is that the suburbs turn out in yep. large numbers. I think that was that has to be an ominous uh, augering for, uh, for Donald Trump. I think that was very Trump-driven as well, and that is a very good sign to, for Biden because he is, he is doing well with voters who don't even normally participate in Democratic primaries who are there because they want an alternative to Donald Trump who's not Bernie. So, you know, all in all, Michigan could not have been better for Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah, I mean, just to point out the other uh, states – uh, because it is interesting that Biden, I mean, Biden in blue collar areas and in rural areas ran strong places where Bernie Sanders against Hillary Clinton did very well. And of course, one of the issues is how much of Bernie's support is Bernie driven and how much was Hillary driven back in 2016? We're beginning to get uh, a feel for that. But mm-hmm. Biden obviously has a greater reach into some of these uh, blue collar and rural areas, not going to carry him against Donald Trump by any stretch of the imagination particularly the rural areas, but even a few point difference 
can be a, a difference maker mm-hmm. in some of these battleground states. I mean, I'll flag one more real quick before we get to Mississippi, just because it's kind of a cliche now, but we better mention it because people are always curious. Macomb County, yes. which has become a Republican county, Trump blew the doors off it. Now, last time, Bernie, with his disaffected workers, was pretty close to buy, uh, to Hillary there. Uh, Biden stomped Bernie and Macomb. And I think a lot of that was UAW retirees don't want to lose their health care. But um, it, that was a very good sign that Biden plays in what is one of the counties where Trump will win it, but you can't let him run up the margins there. From 88 forward, that was Stan Greenberg's sort of test mm-hmm. county for uh, Reagan Democrats, they were called back then, and, that, and it went in Trump's direction. Obama had carried it before, went in Trump's direction. So people are going to be watching there very, very closely. Yeah, I was going to say Mississippi was a blowout. So much so, 81 to, as of the last count, 14.8% for Sanders, which under the Democratic Party rules means he could leave the state of Mississippi without having gained one delegate uh, Mm. because he will have failed to pass the threshold there. Idaho, Biden won. That was a place that had caucuses in the past where Bernie blew the doors off. Right, right. But in a primary, bigger universe, he didn't. Well, North Dakota, yes, a caucus. it was sort of a firehouse caucus, but he, he did, he did yeah, win. Yeah, firehouse uh, primary. Firehouse right. primary, 53-40, he won in North Dakota, but he just got he a two-delegate uh, <laughs> uh, win out of that. Yeah, exactly. Missouri, 60-35, that was a place where uh, that was quite close in 2000 and uh uh, and 16, Biden netted uh, 16 delegates out of there, 30 out of Mississippi, two out of Idaho, 17 out of Michigan. And these are partial counts because they, have, they haven't all been ascertained. And then the state of Washington, basically Biden played him to a draw. Yeah, mail-in ballots again. It looks like it. We, I think there's a quarter at least of it out. It's like poor Bernie. He only does well in Western states that report <laughs> three days later with mail-in ballots. And he's still He's like cursed. But again, right, beats him to a draw, no delegate impact, and nobody heard about it last yeah. night. So all in all, it was a blowout for Biden. Now, the question is, what, what happens now? And how does Biden move forward? How does this race look uh, moving forward? Yeah, I I agree with you that that this week could be about finding a a landing for Bernie in a way that gives Biden a window to pitch into Bernie's core supporters, which would be, you know, good. Um, I don't know if, if, you know, Joe, because Joe is a gaff machine, so he is the plane with the loose bolt, although he's been good lately. I love the thing in Michigan in the uh, Fiat Chrysler plant with the the gun guy. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. We, we, we were talking before about his ability to reach into places like uh, Macomb and these rural areas. It used to be that you would say, gee, having a standoff on the floor of a uh, plant with a blue-collar guy over guns is a bad strategy. But I thought Biden looked pretty good. Yeah. Their guy got in his grill and he gave it back. No, Biden can speak kind of cultural blue collar stuff. And that 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 exchange was just fine for Biden. And I thought the RNC was kind of ham handed and trying to trying to make hay out of it. And, you know, the subtext of it was that Biden doesn't take crap from anybody. And so let's have that debate with Biden and Trump where Trump will try his bully stuff, and Biden clearly can stand up to that. So I thought it was a winner for Biden on all dimensions. Those elements, that cultural kinship with working-class communities, white working-class communities, is why Trump went to such trouble to try and knock Biden out of this race. 
to the point of buying himself an impeachment. This is what the Republicans feared, that Biden was a candidate who could reach into some of their core communities while appealing to those suburban voters. I mean, with Bernie, he had potentially the ability to reach into those rural areas, but there was a real concern that is borne out in some of these primaries that he might run poorly in the suburban areas. Right. Biden has the ability to do a little of both, and that is threatening to Donald Trump. Yeah, I think one thing Bernie did for Biden was scare the hell out of suburbanites economically, which makes Biden look even better, you know, on the whole tax and spend stuff that Repubs like to uh, use to move suburban voters around. So I, I would say going forward, he's got to get through the Sunday debate and hopefully open a window to pitch Bernie voters and get Bernie out on a happier note than a war note. Hopefully he doesn't have to go through another Tuesday and slaughter Bernie some more, though he might have to if Bernie thinks he had a good debate. We're just going to find out. Those signals may change. And then Biden can, without making a thing out of it, lighten up the schedule a little bit and build a machine to keep up with where he is because he's way ahead of his you know, mechanical supply lines now. He needs to build, <laughs> yeah, a, I would a, say. build a general election machine with a strong surrogate capacity that can slug on Trump every day and organize and win the Great Lakes. I, look, I think he's got a shot in Florida. And all that takes time. And Biden doesn't have that now. He he, he has success. He's like the guy who won the, li- the lottery in quarters and he needs to buy a truck to move the money because it's too heavy <laughs> to lift. And, you know, he's standing on the street with 50 bags of quarters in front of him. So, but time can do that. And hopefully they get that. They seem to be learning brevity. I saw a press item on that that I thought was very smart. So I think it's time for them to be shrewd and, and understand they're drinking from a fire hose and be smart about that and turn their attention to the general. A few things on that. His statement on Tuesday night was very, very good. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, there was some virtue to not having a big crowd in front of him because the danger of speaking to a big rally is that you're shouting at the people at home. Right, and exactly. And he looked very presidential in delivering that statement. It hit just the right tone. I thought he was really he was really good. So on this slimming down of his, I, I mean, I my heart goes out to everyone who's already been impacted by the coronavirus. And sadly, there are going to be many, many more. We know that lives are already being disrupted. And we, we have a national crisis on our hands. We'll talk about that in a little bit and how the president is handling it. But one byproduct of this, and it may be gauche to talk about, but we are gauche, so let's do it. <laughs> we are hacks on tap, not Plato on we tap. We are, here. in fact, ha- yeah, so what the hell? The coronavirus is necess- is going to necessitate a slimmed-down campaign schedule. Already Biden had a scrap, a rally, as did Bernie Sanders on election night. You know, it does give a rationale to the campaign to really, really taper his schedule and his public interactions. That is good for him. Very good. They should use that interregnum to do just what you say, have him go out, strategically throw something into the public square for people to chew on, have a an army of surrogates coming in behind him to amplify that message, create problems for, for Trump. But I think that uh, the upside of a terrible downside on this coronavirus from a political standpoint is it does give them the time and space to uh, kind of pull him mm-hmm. back to dry dock and uh, <laughs> do a little work on the project. Yeah, get get out the welding plates. Uh, you know, one thing I think about if I were them is when in doubt, steal from the past and modernize it. And when Jerry Ford in 76, who was a little bit of a 
uneasy on the national stage. Going back to 76? I'm going back to 76. I'm, what about because, Lincoln? You know he did why? a good job. I'm feeling good about America. In fact, maybe we'll play that jingle <laughs> as our out today. I can send it to our engineers. But anyway, uh, with a hat tip to my friend Bob Gardner who wrote it. Anyway, my point being, the Ford guys did a crafty thing. They got Joe Garagiola. Quite the celeb back then, kind of who was a baseball yeah. pl- former player, a famous baseball announcer, right? Exactly for those of, for those of you <laughs> who, who are were born in the twenty first century yeah. or thereabouts, and are sadly removing your Bernie sticker from the MacBook. They did town hall stuff. They did man in the arena shows, and they did conversations. I think the campaign ought to get somebody like that who's a little bit of a pre-aware person in pop culture and do some sit-downs with Biden and just pump them all over social media for free. So you can still get the information going out. You just don't need to infect a crowd. Or you could do a small voter roundtable thing. But package all this stuff on digital so information-hungry voters, of which there are many in this thing, have a way to keep getting Biden information while doing some, obviously, a bunch of cable and all, all the normal earned media stuff you do. And as you say, taking time, though, to, to work on the ship. But there are ways to pump out information about Joe that you don't have to have a big rally or be, you know, pushing a shrum through a, a machine tool factory. You know, uh, it'd actually be the perfect time to do uh, the Axe Files. <laughs> yes, uh, although... We got to get know, that thing going he, again. He should give you some shit because, you know, skipping it, next thing you know, his campaign's alive. But yeah, you should totally do... He's totally going to learn do. the wrong lessons from that. Yeah. That would be the total wrong lesson to learn uh, from completely. this Completely. Well, look, what will the topic be? Me and Obama. He, he could have wrapped it up a week earlier if he had just... Yeah, well, it would have turned done, around New Hampshire. In a timely we, way. we both know that. But yes, I think, you know, all that non-traditional stuff... Uh, he ought to do. And a little less is a little more because people listen more now because he's bigger than he was. So there's there's a great hundred days in front of him if they can they can really use it. So listen to this on, on youth voting because this was where we started. In Michigan, voters under under the age of 45 were 45% in 2016, 38% yesterday. In Missouri, 41 in 2016, 32% yesterday. In uh, Mississippi, 40% in 2016, 32% yesterday. This was obviously a huge problem for Bernie Sanders, who dominated among those younger voters. Mm -hmm. So in addition to sort of wooing these voters, Biden has to motivate them to vote. And uh, this is the one sort of dark cloud over an an otherwise very, very sunny report from uh, Tuesday for Biden, which is, not only did he lose younger voters by a significant margin, uh, overwhelming margin, but they didn't come out in large numbers, which if that holds in the general, it's going to make his job harder. And you know that the Trump folks, because Trump's been out there doing it himself, and you got to believe his digital people are doing it over time, are going to try and drive those disaffected Bernie voters away from the polling place. I think Biden has some work to do, but I think Biden also now owns the best asset in American politics, which is I'm not Trump. And so I think in a general election, the anti-Trump thing will become cooler and cooler. And if the Biden guys market it and handle Joe right, I think they can bring some energy back to that. The other thing, and I'm with you, I hope our uh, hardworking president is totally correct. And there are some scientists that we haven't heard of who are going to have a coronavirus uh, cure in five or six days. So, you know, I, I hope this thing seriously That would turn is, his whole attitude towards science. Uh, yeah, no, he'd, if, he'd, he might read a book. It could be revolutionary. But my point being, hoping that things get 
better fast. But if they don't, both economically and just culturally, not being able to go to things, these shutdowns, and we we have kind of a bleak virus uh, summer here, that I think among young voters as much or more than maybe more than anybody else is going to build pressure for a change. And I don't think Trump is the candidate to kind of, I mean, I think one of the things you guys did with Obama so well was be, Obama became almost not only aspirational politics and everything, it was a bit of a fashion statement. It was the cool thing to be for. And Joe will never be that, but I'll bet he can get close there as the foil to Trump if they manage it well. So I am guardedly optimistic about young voters in the fall, but we're going to have some bumpy months here between where the economy goes, stock market, the virus, and, you know, the international scene too, still a powder keg. So it's just hard to totally predict. Yeah, well, if anything, what we've learned in the last few weeks is that this is a, a incredibly dynamic process, and there are things that are undoubtedly going to happen between now and November that can change the picture. By the way, Biden beat Sanders. This is just in, in – um, I'm just looking at the Michigan exit poll here, but he beat Trump 64-34 among uh, voters who said the most important thing for them is to uh, – find a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And that was 57% as opposed to 38% who said closeness on issues was the most important thing, where Sanders Sanders won. So the other thing that was interesting in these exit polls is in terms of what quality matters the most, 39% the most said they wanted a candidate to represent a change, and Bernie won that category by 20 points. But Almost as many, 30% said they wanted someone who could unite the country. Joe Biden won that category 83-14. And that's where his rhetoric is, too. So it's a natural glove, and it fits him well. Yeah, and and will be, I think, important going into uh, a general election. Let's talk real briefly about the coronavirus, because this thing is, I mean, it was declared a few hours ago a pandemic, not surprisingly. I mean, Italy is in a absolute yeah, shutdown and their health public health system is is collapsing and there are portents for that that are concerning uh, for for the US and elsewhere talk a little bit about Trump and how this whole thing is un, unfurling and uh how he he's going to come out of this whole thing I think nobody even a lot of republicans particularly suburban republicans are watching the president operate here and feel more secure. There is no pros from Dover, sober-minded vibe to this at all. Instead, we see what we've grown to expect, which is the president chasing his political advantages where he can. You know, he was back to his shady businessman tricks a few days ago when he was worried about here on the West Coast, the attention on the cruise ship being able to disembark some people in Oakland. He didn't want to have to report the cases in the American total. So I think this thing is... uh, is trouble, and I think its economic impact, as we see from the fear gyrations of the stock market, is trouble too. I mean, is is it the end of the world? No, people can kind of take a breath, but it it is a serious public health thing. It is, as you said, a pandemic, and the president has this image of being the strong guy who's always in charge, but he's looking more and more feeble against this particular problem, which is not an easy political problem. We just blame Nancy Pelosi. So the president is fighting on new terrain here rather than the normal partisan back and forth where, you know, his insults and his tribalism give him some tools to work with. 
And so I think it's going to be pretty bad. And, you know, people are afraid. I'm in a weird situation because I was supposed to be in Germany tomorrow. I was supposed to be in New York today. Monday afternoon, I walk into my doctor's office thinking I have a cold with a hacking cough. And not only can I not fly anywhere, he says, you're seeing a public with that cough. They're going to throw you into containment. I think you've got a cold, not the virus, but go home and don't leave. And, you know, the supermarket shelves out here are getting getting empty. I mean, this is a stressful time when people would like a commander-in-chief on television who seems to be large and in charge and on top of it. And while Pence, I think, is filling some of that vacuum because Trump doesn't, that only makes Trump look worse, you know, in the contrast. Well, I agree. And you wonder how long, you know, it was interesting because Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, praised Pence and criticized Trump. And Trump responded at the CDC by calling Inslee a snake. And you have to wonder if, if you really want to drive Trump nuts, just keep praising Pence. Yeah. for the job he's doing. And you you notice that Pence mentions Trump in every sentence when he yeah. he talk, when he when he delivers his report. Well, he knows he works for Stalin, you know. <laughs> Two more compliments and his whole family's going to get arrested. That SD <laughs> Bannon how that works. Oh, the great genius Bannon, you know. Trump will turn on you in a dime. I went to the Stalin Museum in Georgia years ago and they had a great picture of Stalin in fifth grade, this little wolf kid in front of everybody. And these are all his comrades, and eight of them became revolutionaries. Oh, what happened? Oh, they, they rose with him. Then what happened? He had them all shot. Um, <laughs> so, because, you know, they, they look good in the photo. So, yeah, poor Pence. Just in the last few days, the, the, that incredible performance at the CDC, yeah. which was kind of shocking, and then declaring that, you know, while his public health experts are urging people to keep social distancing, no large gatherings, and so on. The president announces a rally in Wisconsin. Is it was? I guess he's going to Wisconsin, right? Yeah, that was what at least he was announcing. I, I, I think it's tomorrow. I haven't really read the details. I'm not sure it'll survive. The problem for Pence and the public health professionals is that they keep getting undercut by the president of the United States. It's always been true that one of his potential vulnerabilities, one of his great vulnerabilities, is this sense that all of these tweets and tantrums and feuds and and all the chaos that reigns around him has a cost. And that cost is now becoming more evident uh, when you have an actual crisis that requires uh, Mm -hmm. real leadership and public spiritedness and not crass politics. You know, this story yesterday about going to the Senate caucus and saying he wants a payroll tax cut that runs through election day. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what message does that send? Yeah, it's a bribe. Uh, about where his priorities, uh, where his priorities lie. So, you know, this is going to be interesting. Uh, and as you point out, he was relying on a strong economy, almost certainly not going to get that. The economy will bounce back when this problem is over. But ultimately, the source of the problem is the public health crisis. And you got to deal with that, not just the symptoms which is a uh, stock market that's plummeting and all the problems that people are experiencing around the country yeah, yeah. financially. And I would say this, my, my free market friend, uh, <laughs> my, an, my anti-government friend, that the absence of paid leave for workers right now is uh, something that we're going to pay a price for because people are going to feel like they have to go to work even if they don't feel well. The absence of some sort of universal health care system whether it's building on Obamacare or something else, is going to become clear. The absence of investment in our public health system is going to, uh, the problems with that are going to become clear. You, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to rail against government as you do with such zeal. Ah. 
But uh, there are times when uh, you look around and you kind of wonder where the government is. And uh, this is one of those times. Well, this is always the axis that you, uh, you, you sneaky salesmen for the road to serfdom are, are always going for. Whenever <laughs> there's insecurity in the public, more government, more government. That's always the answer. There's, when there's chaos, people want government, and then they, then they get a lot of it and it never goes away. So we, we, we will track this over the next when few you, months. When here. you contract the virus, you call General Motors and ask them to come over. No, I'm going to call answer. Santa Fe and Pfizer. <laughs> if they've been in charge of the kids. Well, they're working quicker. on it. You know, they're, they're working on it. And, and in a year, in a year or a year and a half, you're going to have a vaccine. <laughs> one thing quickly, one thing quickly, because you got to do a pretty good routine there. I want to hear <laughs> this because it's going to give you a migraine. But uh, how about a salute to the health insurance companies, which are actually responding to this pretty well? Yeah, um, no, I, I have no you know, problem with that. Yeah, I have no problem with that. They're doing okay. You know, one last point on this, though. Sadly, the public health experts tell us that there may be a some sort of reduction or pause in this virus over the summer, as often happens, but then another season will arise in the fall that could be as virulent or more than this. And until we get the vaccine, there's not a lot you can do about it. So this disruption could last quite a while here. And it does raise questions uh, about the impact on the election, not just how people's attitudes are affected by it, but also about their ability to vote and, uh, you know, how all of those. Yeah, and campaigning becomes different. I mean, on many different dimensions. But I think what we what we know now that the headline, at least for a couple of political hacks looking forward with a lot of open questions is a real Trump and his ridiculousness is a luxury we can afford in semi-good times. But when the stakes rise in a crisis, all of a sudden I think it starts to look like a pretty expensive luxury. Because as you say, people do look to the government for more. And if the, the person running it has clown shoes, the uh, the act gets old quick. So I do think politically we're entering an environment here which is exactly what the president would rather not have. He'd rather have nobody worried about anything so there's plenty of room and tolerance for his antics. And that, that could be going away for the rest of the year. Biden, by the way, polled well against Sanders on the question of who's best equipped to deal with a crisis. And he polled well against Trump, I believe, in a CNN poll uh, earlier this week uh, on the same uh, question. So he does have a lot of experience. That experience may pay off for him. Uh, relative to this. He said last night he's going to make a speech later this week on the coronavirus issue and how it should be handled. The world looks a lot different today than it did just a couple of weeks ago. But I can tell you, for all the vicissitudes of politics, my friend, one thing that doesn't go away is the need for sponsors. So why don't we uh, why don't we talk to some of these great companies that are helping us out here at Hacks on Tap? All right, let's do it. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with 
motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach, telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. It's listener mailbag. Okay, Axe, here is our first question from Ashley. The question that has been on my mind since Biden surged in Super Tuesday is the Democratic Party making a huge mistake or a smart decision by coalescing behind Joe Biden? I agree that Sanders might have been a huge risk, but I was prepared to take that gamble over choosing the establishment candidate. If Biden becomes the Democratic nominee, can he continue to be the Biden people love during his South Carolina victory speech and keep the momentum going to bash Trump? What do you think, X? I think that's that's obviously a big question, and we'll see. I mean, Biden has shown great strengths uh, in this uh, in this primary season and durability that people didn't. Uh, anticipate after he had a, a slow start in Iowa uh, and New Hampshire. But, uh, you know, I, I would take my cue from Trump himself. The lengths to which he went to try and stop Biden from becoming the nominee uh, really speak to his concerns. And as we talked about a little earlier, he reaches into some of the very uh, constituencies uh, that Trump is counting on uh, and he uh, is the, perhaps the most broadly acceptable uh, of the candidates in terms of uh, holding together a broad democratic coalition. So it's going to be challenging because uh, the Trump team is going to throw everything at him. I don't believe they're going to make people believe that Joe Biden is corrupt. Yeah, this morning, uh, his son was suggesting that Joe Biden was on the edge of dementia. Uh, I don't know that, uh, you know, you watched. Trump from day to day, and you want to make this argument on mental health grounds. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think Biden could be a very strong candidate, but it's a question of how his campaign handles him, whether they fashion the kind of campaign that maximizes his strengths and keeps him out of situations that uh, expose vulnerabilities. Uh, but boy, there sure seems to be a lot of pent up energy out there uh, uh, that is anti Trump. It's propelled Biden forward here in the primaries, and it may just propel him forward in the general election as well. Yeah, that's my instinct, too. I think winning helps you get better, and that's clearly happened with Biden over the last couple of weeks. And Biden now has the great American narrative, a comeback. 
That said, he's still Joe Biden, and the best thing they could do, and I think they they understand this, is they don't have to be Carl Walenda up alone on the wire anymore. They can build a big machine to help Joe be a better Joe, and Joe's going to have to accept that. He tends to have this tight-knit circle led by his sister, who did a great job from the primary, but uh, they're going to the show now, and hopefully they'll make the right adjustment so he has a machine to help him out. Yes, we shall see. I think we're going to have plenty of conversation uh, between now and whenever about this now November, certainly. And there'll be some uh, hair-raising moments, I'm sure. So, Mike, Jonas asks a really interesting question. I've been watching Warren in the past days and wondering, why didn't she run like that? Real emotion and not just plan, 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 aspirations beyond policy talk, humor, warmth, all the things she needed to complement the fight rhetoric and the harsh cerebral vibe of a Harvard Harvard prof. Why do candidates appear so much more likable after they drop out? You know, this is a great question, Jonas and Axe. I mean, we both had this experience where we see candidates liberated by losing And they kind of undergo a bit of a transformation. They let their guard down. They got nothing to lose. They're fear-free. And they go out, and they're incredibly charming. They often are the the best public personas they've ever been. So it's not uncommon. And that has happened to Elizabeth Warren a little bit. It happened to Phil Graham back in the day, too. I remember in 96 when Phil was running, he was a little difficult to put up with. And then he lost. And I don't know. It humanized him. Something happened, and he changed. So you've seen it, right? How many times have we said, gee, if that Al Gore right, right. or if that Hillary Clinton, people had seen that Hillary Clinton, I, I, you know, everybody keeps mentioning to me uh, Hillary Clinton's appearance uh, two hours with Howard Stern. Uh, and what people saw were warmth and humor and things that people who were close to her have seen uh, over a long period of time. But uh, she could not muster those things as a candidate. It is it's not unusual Uh uh, because the pressure is off and you don't feel like every word you utter has great stakes to it. You don't, right, measure, right. you know, what happens is candidates measure their words uh, so carefully when they become candidates and they lose their authenticity and they lose their genuineness. Uh, and uh, it's very hard to uh, avoid that. The candidates who succeed are the ones who do, but yes, Elizabeth Warren uh, is a, uh, I, I think people are seeing, her personality in full, including uh, her uh, performance on Saturday Night Live uh, after she dropped out of the race. And, um, uh, you know, if she could bottle that and take it back, perhaps she would. Oh, I bet bet you would. They all learn this. Once they're fear-free, they're better. But it's a hard place to be when you're a candidate. Well, I think I hear the music. Last call. What do you got, X? Joe Biden is on the cusp of seizing this nomination and uh, trying to navigate this in such a way as to bring the Democratic Party together. You could hear it in his comments last night. But at the same time he was making those comments, you had some supporters, Jim Clyburn being one of them, who deserves a platform given the fact that he really did so much to resuscitate the Biden candidacy in South Carolina. James Carville, brilliant friend of mine eager to get on with the race and basically suggesting that uh, it should be shut down uh, and you could feel their hands in the small of Bernie Sanders' back. Uh, not smart, not good. Uh, I, I, it, it'd be, it's better to go one more week in this race and have Sanders leave of his own volition and without feeling coerced to do so uh, than, uh, than to, to get him out now. And, uh, 
you know, I, I'm sure the Biden people winced when they saw some of those comments. Yeah, I thought James was a thousand percent right. He's a pal of mine, too, at the right moment. But now is not the right moment. I was reminded watching this uh, this morning of uh, of all people, Don Rumsfeld wrote a great book about being Jerry Ford's chief of staff. I'm kind of on a Jerry Ford kick on this episode. And he talked about how they had to deal with Nixon to kind of ease him forward and the psychology of somebody after they've been beaten up. People forget these politicians are human beings. So gratuitous Bernie bashing now in this delicate period is not in the Democratic Party's interest because Bernie could send some bad signals too. So I agree with that one. My, my last call is really simple. We talked a lot about getting Bernie on board, but if I were Joe Biden, I'm, I'm sure there's some bruised feelings. And when you're winning, you kind of start to go down a Frank Sinatra route of, no, he can call me. I'm the king now. But go see Bloomberg. You need that couple hundred million dollar machine, which has done tremendous data work in the industrial Midwest. Uh, and you need the uh, the, the mayor to uh, not only do this out of duty, but out of passion. So d- don't forget the Bloomberg machine. There's a lot of value there, and it can help a campaign, the Biden campaign that now doesn't have much of a machine, uh, get where it needs to go. So a little a little plug. I'll tell you something about that. You were absolutely right about the Bloomberg machine. And there is going to be a a boatload of activity and lots and lots of money on the Democratic side. The question is, will it be coordinated? I was talking to a prominent Democrat the other day who said, you know, uh, that he was concerned about all of the money that's being expended in Wisconsin, all necessary. Wisconsin could be the pivotal state in the country. But this guy was pointing out that there is a point of diminishing returns and that some of that money could better be invested in places like Arizona and uh, and North Carolina, which could very much be in play uh, and could help Senate candidates down there as well. They don't want to make the mistake, uh, these outside groups that Hillary made in 2016 and in shorting Michigan and shorting Wisconsin and pouring mm-hmm. resources into Arizona. But you, you ought to know when you've reached the max and when you can do good elsewhere. So the lack of coordination right now among these groups they are allowed to coordinate the outside groups with each other, could hurt Democrats. So one of the things that they need to do is figure out how they're going to coordinate that. If they don't, they could be much less efficient than they need to be. Oh, totally, totally. It's vitally important, and hopefully part of the party-wide focus on winning will do that. You guys, the Republicans do that very well, you know, work uh, work in Marshall uh, with martial efficiency, you know, the conservative movement uh, gathering in well, Grover Norquist's uh, <laughs> Conference We're room. used to the, the discipline of the private sector, David. When you're organizing a march for socialism, it's let a thousand flowers bloom. But we, uh, we're there trying to get to the bottom line. But I hope they steal all our tricks. Now, I think we're wrapped up. Wash your hands. Yep. Look out. Take care of the yeah. people you take, love. You take and, care of that cold. Uh, yeah, I know. My, my cough now. I can't go out. People look at me and run away. Um, <laughs> and then finally, because we've done a little salute to Jerry Ford, I thought it would be fun to go out on the famous jingle that moved a ton of numbers. Ford almost won, called Feeling Good About America, a little touch of the 70s. Uh, I'll see you next week. <laughs> All right, brother. There's a change that's come over America, a change that's great to see. We're living here in peace again. We're going back to work again. It's better than it used to be. I'm feeling good about America. See you.